testing. I'm using a new microphone today uh, and I'm hoping that there's not too much echo. I'm just starting to realize that there's a bit of echo in this room. So hopefully I'm coming through okay. Anyway, before I start today's podcast, I wanted to tell you guys about something cool that I discovered recently that I just kind of wanted to share. I recently got my girlfriend, um, was going to get her a new laptop and we were talking about the possibility of getting a NUC instead. Uh, and so I did a little bit of research online. She's had a Microsoft laptop before and she doesn't travel with it very often, but she wants to be able to travel with it. So I found one of these Intel NUCs. I think it's like an Intel NUC 12. And after looking into it and talking with her a little bit, we just kind of decided, hey, let's try something different. Let's get this and see how it works. And so we got it, installed Windows and did all of that stuff. And it is pretty darn good. And I can't believe how small they are as well. But here's the kicker. I discovered this thing recently called the Dope Splay. And the Dope Splay is basically like a laptop without a laptop in it. So you got the screen, you've got the keyboard of a laptop, but there's no motherboard in there. There's no, um, basically no technology inside of it, aside from being able to like plug in uh, something like a NUC via USB-C. And then once you've got it plugged in with USB-C, you can plug in like audio, you can plug in um, USBs and stuff like that. So it acts just like a laptop, but it's not, you know, a laptop. <laughs> it's just kind of like the screen and the keyboard. So I thought this was just such a really interesting, cool idea. And then later discovered that there's this thing called like DEX or I can't remember exactly what it's called, some Android thing where you can plug an Android into one of these and essentially use your Android like a laptop, which honestly I'm not that interested in. I'd rather just use my laptop, but it's just kind of cool to see where technology is going. And another thing you can do with it is stuff like, you know, just watching Netflix or just using it as a television screen or as a gaming screen when you go on holidays. So I thought that was a really, really cool concept. And it kind of led me down this rabbit hole at looking at a couple of other things like uh, laptops that are super modular now. Like I think it's called like Framework 14 or something like that. This laptop that allows you to easily swap out just about everything inside of the laptop. And the idea is the big selling point is it will be able to set, you'll be able to just keep upgrading it into the future and you won't have to constantly buy new laptops. So I don't know how true that promise is, but yeah, sounds pretty cool. I know we were going to do something like this with phones, but it just never really took off. I think Google, yeah, Google was doing something like that, but they killed the, the company or the idea. Anyway, today I wanna to talk to you about a bit of a problem that I hit whilst I was working on uh, ViewModel. So ViewModel needs to send requests, usually requests that are going to an API backend. So like, you know, Laravel API, whatever. And the problem that I hit was, what happens when you send two, for example, two create requests um, at the same time? So the first one hasn't finished yet, but then you've just done a second create request. And if you can imagine, this is all done within a composable. So you've got a loading state. Um, and what you could do is you could say, for example, well, once you fire that second create request, if the first hasn't finished, it doesn't really change anything because it's still in a loading state. But what about other things like accessing the response? Should you then have two response objects? So if you do a request A and then request B and they're both still happening, well, what is response.value? What's, you know, should it be the one from the first one or the second one? 
And I think the answer to that is actually the second one. It just gives you the latest response and essentially does it the best that it can. You shouldn't really need the response value anyway. Usually everything is then pulled from uh, your store. But I started realizing that there are a couple of weird problems here that scale. Like what one of the features that I was adding, which made me realize this, this issue is, um, oh, what's it called? Hang on, I'm gonna pause this while I think of the word. Right, optimistic. So if you wanna do optimistic create, so for example, I'm creating a comment, uh, and Trello's a great example of this. Actually, let's use Trello as an example. When you create a card in Trello, you don't get a spinny thing saying, oh, we're now creating that card for you. And one of the big selling points, and I think one of the reasons that Trello really took off from the beginning is that incredibly snappy UI. You really felt like you were using an app. And the reason is they use optimistic creates and optimistic updates, meaning that when you type in whatever you need for that card and then you press um, enter or you click somewhere else on the screen, it's already started creating that card for you um, well, sorry, it creates the card on the front end, so it creates the data on the front end before the back end request has even been successful. And so you can make like, you know, 10 different cards really, really quickly, one after the other on a super slow internet. And then it's sort of ticking in the background doing those requests. And it's using WebSockets, I think, as well, which kind of helps with the speed. But anyway, the point is, um, there's actually a bit of risk that you can be working, working, working really quickly, and then you close the app. Um, and then it might lose that data. And they're probably doing some stuff like using local storage or something like that to try and rectify that as best they can. But anyway, the point is, I really love this idea of being able to do optimistic creates and optimistic updates. Uh, but one of the things you really need when you're using that kind of a feature is rollbacks. So if I try to create something and it hits the back end and something goes wrong, it needs to be able to roll back. And maybe you have features in place, so instead of having rollback, you persist it to local storage and you pull it out of local storage and then you kind of try and create it later on. But anyway, the point is, you might, for example, create four records, but then you need to have some sort of a mechanism that says, oh, hang on, request A and request C failed. So I need you to roll back those, but I don't need you to roll back the others. So then all of a sudden, you need to kind of be able to keep track of the requests that are happening and be able to roll back with the correct data. So you can't just have one rollback value, you actually have to store multiple rollback values because, and you need to be able to know which request is aligned with which rollback value. So all of a sudden this kind of use create request, um, sorry, use create resource composable, it doesn't really work as simply as you'd like it to anymore. And I really don't wanna have an API that's sort of ugly where you have to be able to you know, all of a sudden now everything you access has to happen through an array. So what I decided on, um, and I think I've decided on this, I'm still kind of thinking it through, which is why I'm doing this podcast to help get those thoughts in place. I'm thinking of creating a queue system. And this is, I'm a little bit reluctant because I know it's gonna send me down this rabbit hole because I realized then that the queue systems available online just don't fit the way I code. They don't fit, like the, the way I want to build into the future and the way I want to build an army of developers is creating an invisible line of communication. I've talked about this before, where everybody does things the same way. And that's why I'm creating view model. So every time you use an API, it doesn't matter what the back end is, we're all on the same page of how that works. And 
I kind of want to then want to use something like that for working with queues. So I don't want to just create a queue system. We want to be able to create a queue system that's going to be able to work on different platforms and always the exact same way. And the classic example of this is browser versus a mobile app. So often when you're using something like Capacitor, you might have two versions of your app. And you know, you'll often want to do this with Quasar. This is one of the cool things about Quasar is that you can have um, a Capacitor you know, mobile version, which is on iOS and Android, but then a version with the exact same code base um, that does your web browser version of the app as well. And then a desktop version as well. So think like Discord applications or Slack, stuff like that, where they work across all of these different mediums. Uh, using the same code base. So the problem with that is you need to be able to swap out the way that it interacts with the queue. Because if I have a queue that works in the browser and maybe for example, it, I want it to use web workers and I want it to store the failed records in local storage. So whenever something goes wrong in that queue, it stores it in local storage. Um, but you know everything's kind of done using uh, what do you call it? Um, I just said the word then. Anyway, it's, it's, it's all done in a certain way. But then when you're doing it in a mobile application, well, you can't really use local storage like what I talked about before. You kind of have to use something different, which is like a, an SQL database. So they've got other ways that you can do key value storage that stores it on the phone rather than trying to use local storage in a mobile app, which doesn't really work correctly. So then on a desktop application, you might want to do it different once again. And so we can't just have one implementation of the queue. We want to have an interface for this queue saying this is how queues work. And then we implement a version of that interface. So what I decided to do is build my own implementation or build my own contract around a queue. And I've, one of the reasons I'm doing this podcast is basically to say, I think this is going to be, this might be my calling. This might be what I want to do for the next maybe 5, 10, 15, or even 20 years, which is to create interfaces around the web. And I just haven't really seen, maybe I'm wrong about this, and hopefully somebody can let me know if this is, this is a thing. I haven't seen something like Laravel for the front end. And I understand that there's a lot of differences. You can't just build a massive framework for the front end because we have to worry about things like, you know, the fact that the user has to download the entire application. Whereas with a back end, your back end can be as large as it wants to be. And it doesn't really matter that much uh, because, you know, well, you don't, the user doesn't have to download that whole app. So they don't have to worry about um, the bandwidth of those files. But anyway, the point I'm making is, for things like working with an API, we have GraphQL, which is a kind of a sort of a solution to this. Um, but you can't, at least to the best of my knowledge, you can't really easily swap out backends with GraphQL. I, I guess you kind of can, but it depends on how you implement GraphQL. But anyway, um, even if you don't use the interface all the time, something like view model is going to allow you to kind of like do things the same way when you're working across different backends. And I wanna have the same thing for storage. I want an interface for when I store data on a backend. You know, why can't I just um, have an interface that says, 
this is how you store it to AWS, or sorry, this is an implementation for AWS. Here's an implementation for Google's you know, cloud storage or whatever the hell that's called. Here's an implementation for doing it kind of the standard Laravel way. But then here's an implementation for doing it on the user's computer. So one of the benefits of ViewModel is we're going to have this local storage implementation. So you can use local storage as if it were a backend API and then swap that out for something else in the future. What if you could do that for images as well? What if you could say, I don't have a backend for images right now, but you can change your profile picture or you can upload images for blog posts. And um, there's probably a million other examples of this. Maybe you're building like an example chat app. You can have images that are sent into the chat as well. And all of those images go into local storage. And then when you're ready to actually build the application that you'll put into production, you just swap that out for uh, a backend that uses, for example, Laravel or Ruby for storing its images, um, you know, like a Ruby on Rails backend. So I just think that there's a really big gaping hole in the ecosystem, like in the whole web ecosystem, which is just creating interfaces for these problems. Like, it, and really that's the, I was gonna say it's the easy part. It's actually not the easy part because building the interface even though it's not code, it's just, you know, a contract for how other people will write code. It's hard because you need to kind of have a broad knowledge of uh, different ways that that implementation would be used. So if you're going to say, well, you know, like imagining somebody wandering into a room and saying, well, I'm going to be the one that builds the storage interface for the web. It's like, well, okay, if you're going to be that person, then you need to have experience using AWS, using you know Google, using um, you know ten different storage providers. And once you've used a whole bunch of different storage providers, then maybe we can consider you as the person that's going to build you know the storage interface that we're all going to go all in on because somebody has to make those decisions, and you really want the person making those decisions to know um, to have a good idea of what that API should look like. Uh, yeah, like, you know, can you imagine if our interfaces for, well, our implementations for JavaScript, by the way, this is pretty much what the web is. The web is just one massive interface and there's an implementation by Safari. Um, there used to be one by Internet Explorer, but there, I guess you could say there isn't anymore because that's been axed. There's an implementation which is um, Chrome or what, what's it called? The Chromium engine or whatever that's called. Uh, really, there's the Firefox, which actually I'm pretty sure it uses Chromium under the hood now. But really, they all just agree on a standard, which is kind of like an interface. And then everybody goes, um, I don't actually know what it's like behind the scenes. I don't know how much they argue on this stuff. But ideally, everybody goes, yep, okay, all of these smart people think we should do it this way. So let's all agree on that. And then they go off and they all implement um, that feature into the browser. So... It's kind of like, what if we went a few levels higher and we did that for the web? So I don't want to be that person who walks into the room and goes, oh, I'm going to be the person that decides on the interface for this. But what I do want to do is essentially do that for a small hemisphere of people. So kind of like how you've got Symphony for the PHP world, which um, actually, no, that's a bad example. Uh, a good example of this is Laravel isn't saying, hey, everybody, this is how you use storage from now on when you're using PHP. It's just doing it within its own ecosystem. It's saying, hey, we're doing things the Laravel way. 
And therefore, this is how you do notifications. This is how you do storage. This is how you work with eloquence. So basically how you like communicate with data. Um, this is how you communicate with an SQL database. So people then can, re can create their own implementations. And you know, Taylor Otwell can make his own implementations for like um, MySQL and Postgres and my maybe Microsoft SQL. I don't think they have actually officially supported that. But anyway, you get the point. And so I kind of want to do that within what I'm calling now the LSD standard. This is our way of doing things. And we're not going to have a framework as such because I don't think that quite works on the web. You can't really, it's just too much overhead on the web, but we can still take that concept of saying, this is how we do things. So I want to be able to say, this is the LSD standard way. And LSD are my initials. It's kind of a tongue in cheek thing. Luke, Samuel Diebold and you know, LSD is in the drug. So I thought that was kind of funny. Oh man, do we have to put an E on this podcast now? Ugh. Maybe I should cut that. No, I'll just, I'll just keep going. <laughs> so um, the point is I want to be able to create my own standards around this stuff and then be able to hire a team in the future. There's a much larger vision here. So I want to build this foundation. Then I can teach people and say, this is how we do storage. And I can train people on how we do storage. And then I can say, this is how we work with a backend and train people on how we do backends. This is how we do queues. This is how we handle X, Y, Z problems. And then just keep building up interfaces and building up kind of an infrastructure of ways. And, and it's almost like an architecture of thinking. Everybody on our team, whenever they come with a, up to a new problem that hasn't been solved yet, we either say we're not going to take on that problem or we build an interface around that so that we can solve that problem with different implementations. And that's kind of the big goal here. And that's why when I hit this problem um, of realizing, oh crap, I think I'm actually gonna have to go down this rabbit hole of figuring out how to do queues and building an entire interface around queues which honestly I don't really want to do. It kind of excites me because it's it would be cool to have a queue implementation that you can, a queue interface that you can swap out with different implementations. But the other side of me like is kind of thinking, oh man, I just want to, can I just ignore this problem right now and just finish view models so that I can get it out into the world and I can start using it because it's so cool and I'm so excited about it. Um, yeah, so I'm kind of having a bit of a crisis at the moment trying to figure out um, how many rabbit holes do I go down? Because once I do this queue system, I also have to then solve the storage implementation problem because a queue is going to have to store failed jobs and it's going to have to be able to decide whether or not it stores them in memory or it stores them in local storage, which it can then fetch later on. So this could be a pretty deep rabbit hole because if I'm going to solve this problem, my philosophy is you always solve the problem properly, uh, even if it takes you a lot more time. And I understand some people don't have that luxury. I do have that luxury in life. And so I'm really disinterested in just solving problems so that I can just race on to the next thing. I, I like solving problems really deeply. Um, yeah, so I'm kind of, I'm, and honestly, at this point in the podcast, talking this out has kind of helped. I'm thinking I might just try and get a version one of view model out that has kind of an internal basic um, queuing system or maybe not even a queue system, but like it, it stores, whenever you try to create um, a record, it stores that record and it stores the request, uh, but that isn't opened up to the user. So it, it might have like a queue of, um, and queue is a bad word now, it might have like an array or an object of three or four requests, um, 
And with those requests will also be the rollback data. And if the request fails, it then you know, does a rollback. But the API remains simple. So from the API perspective, the response is just the latest response um, based on the latest request that you've tried to do. So I don't know, I'll have to kind of think that through a little bit and decide what will be the best solution. Anyway, this has been a 20 minute podcast now. I hope you guys don't mind my ramblings. I'm really enjoying doing these podcasts. It's a great opportunity to sort of get my thoughts out into the ether. And, you know, I'm hoping that someday soon after I've created a lot of these implementations, one sec, my phone's going off. I've got a um, alarm that tells me it's my last chance for coffee. So it's 10.30 right now. And after at 10.30, I either have a coffee or I'm not allowed any more coffees for the day because coffee keeps me up all, <laughs> all night if I have it too late in the day. Uh, yeah, so I'm really hoping that someday, someday soon I can get enough of these interfaces in place that we can then take these ideas out into the workforce. I think it's gonna take about six months before my foundation is how I want it to be. The vision is how I want it to be. At the moment, I'm not doing a lot of work at the moment and uh, uh, my girlfriend is working. My, I've got this like hashtag free Shannon um, thing going on in my brain. Like I, I wanna be able to create a team and create um, an infrastructure for coding so that we can solve problems really quickly, but also really robustly. Um, and then she won't have to work anymore and I won't have to work anymore. I mean, technically I'll be working, but this stuff just feels like fun to me. So yeah, the goal is to get that done uh, by about halfway through next year. But my philosophy around this is to just keep solving problems properly. So if it ends up taking shorter than that, great. Or if it takes it longer than that, then it is what it is. We're building um, an entire pipeline, an ecosystem of developing that is then going to have videos. So I'm gonna teach my entire way of developing through videos. And then the idea is people like all of you out there will watch these videos and they'll sort of see what I'm doing and you know learn from it. And then we'll talk to each other in community. So we'll have like our own Discord channel um, you know, where I'll help you with Quasar problems and we can talk about, you know, um, the ideas of interfaces that we might want to implement in the future. And because people will then have learned my way of doing things, they will start thinking like me in terms of interfaces and architecture. And I'm not trying to say that my way of thinking is the right way, This, but um, my way of thinking is the kind of thinking that I want to work with in the future. Like I want new ideas, sure, but... Um, you know, too many cooks spoil the broth sort of thing. I want to be able to make sure that we've only got a few head chefs that are um, sort of at the top of all of this, deciding on what the interfaces look like. The kind of architects are the ones that, um, you know, work on that kind of thing. And then as we share our knowledge, we build an environment, um, a, a kind of a an ecosystem of people that think like that as well. Sort of like what Laravel's done, where people do things the Laravel way. Um, I want to be able to build a community of people that do things the LSD standard way. And then the idea is a lot of you will reveal yourself to me in the ecosystem. So I'll start noticing people uh, that are learning this stuff really quickly or that are interested and just you know want to code in this way. A lot of people are going to say, eh, this isn't for me. I want to do things X, Y, Z way, or I'd rather use React, or I'd rather just use Vue without Quasar, which is fine. Um, but then the people that kind of just really resonate with my way of coding um, or our way of coding, the sort of the LSD standard way will reveal themselves in the community. And then I want to start plucking people out of the community and basically saying, uh, hey, do you want to 
come work for me. Or the larger dream is to then buy a property. I'm thinking in Portugal at the moment, but it doesn't really matter where it is in the world, hopefully nice weather. But to buy a property somewhere like Portugal and then uh, be able to find someone in the community that's you know doing really well and then say, hey, I want to. Um, do you want me to fly you to Portugal and we'll work closely together for a month or so? And then after you know you've worked for us, um, uh, sorry, after we've trained you up, you can then come and work for us, and we'll pay you well because what we do is really good, and our clients really appreciate our speed and the robustness of the things that we build. So that's the bigger dream here that I'm trying to uh, create. And I've got to tell you, it's a blast. If none of this is successful, I'm actually not that attached to the outcome because I'm just having so much fun building this stuff, building stuff with VTest. Um, and it's, it's just like a really cool way to develop. And I love just kind of growing this knowledge base and I love the idea of it. And so if it doesn't actually end up coming to fruition, which I'm pretty sure it will because I'm super motivated and having a blast here. But if it doesn't come to fruition, I kind of love that feeling of not being attached to it to the outcome. So if it, I'm kind of getting a bit into philosophy now, and you know, the art of meditation, where I act in the world as in a, as if um, all of this is going to be successful, but keeping it that separate to the part of my brain that says, you know, this needs to be successful. That kind of part of your brain that makes you really anxious because things aren't happening quickly enough or because you're not making enough money. Like, I've got enough money to survive. Um, I've got a good enough lifestyle that I can survive. I'm not a millionaire. Um, I'm not making, you know, six figures or anything like that. Um, I've done that before, and it was fun, and I kind of like the work, but I'd rather be making, you know, a few thousand bucks a month than making, you know, $200,000 a year in a job that it doesn't even have to be a job that I hate in a job that is kind of like, eh, this is okay. I could live like this for a while. But man, when you detach yourself from the outcome and when you detach yourself from this obsession with money, um, it kind of gives you the breadth to sit back and think. And I actually believe that this trajectory that I'm on now is going to yield so much more money in the future than if the focus was on, um, you know, let's make lots of money right now. And hopefully some of you can kind of resonate with that and, um, you know, can take something from that because life can be so much better when you're not attached to this outcome of making money. I'm just so happy now. I go for walks every day. Um, Sometimes I'm just not really thinking straight and, you know, I'm looking over the code and nothing's really entering. So I go, oh, you know what? I'm just going to go for like a half an hour or an hour walk. And it's so much better to live a life like that than it is to live a life where you're making a crap ton of money. I'd you know, much rather spend three months of my life focusing really hard, making lots and lots and lots of money, and then spend, you know, uh, I don't know, a year living in a shoebox going for walks. And, you know, as long as you, I need a little bit of shelter, I guess, because I need to be able to work on my laptop. And I can't work on my laptop if I'm living in a box in the rain. <laughs> okay, that'll do. Thanks so much, everybody, for listening. And remember, there is nothing you can't build. See you in the next one.